Yo. Hello, welcome to today's to today's episode of Juicing the Big Screen, your movies review and discussion podcast. I am one of your reviewer critic people, Joshua Tracy. And I'm Roger Ebert. Wait, no, Corwin Heller. Oh my god, this joke every week. Uh I have nothing else to add. That is of value. Oh, we know. Yeah, we know. We're all we all listen to it. Uh anyway. Uh, welcome to today's show. We're talking about the uh, 2021 film Judas and the Black Messiah and the 2019 film Uncut Gems. Corwin, where do you feel like starting today? Uh, Uncut Gems. All right, let's get into it. Um, Uncut Gems came out in 2019. It is written and directed by Benny Safdie and Josh Safdie. It also has a writing credit attributed to Ronald Bronstein. Um, it stars Adam Sandler, Julia Fox, and Adina Menzel. Also a um, uh, lot of screen time devoted to Lakeith Stanfield and Kevin Garnett. Uh, it had an estimated budget of $19 million, and it claims a cumulative worldwide gross of $50 million, which, yeah, wow, okay, that's not a lot. Um, uh, all right, weird. Would have expected more, yeah. but it is an indie film. So, actually, that—that that is the point. It is an indie film. That's actually a lot of money for an indie film. Um. Anyway, uh, it has no tagline, and it's about, uh, with his debts mounting and angry collectors closing in, a fast-talking New York City jeweler risks everything in hopes of staying afloat and alive. Corwin, this was your pick this week. Go ahead and give me your thoughts. Uh, this is called Stress the Movie. Um, I think, you know, of all the talk that this has had recently, you know, it was Adam Sandler's, you know, piece de resistance where he was saying if he doesn't get, you know, nominated or best acting nominee or, or winning it, uh, he would go on to make the worst movie he's ever made. I know that was always the talk of the town back when this came out, but I will say this is a... a very well-made movie by the Safdie brothers. I know we both are big fans of theirs. Um, this is just one of the more difficult movies to watch for me because it has nothing to do with the quality of the film. It's an amazingly well-made film, and I know we talk about this. It's just, this is so tense for the entire film. It's so stressful. It just gets your heart racing. That no matter how visually appealing it is, no matter how enticing the storyline is, it's just constant. It's like revving your car to like a thousand RPM or, you know, 6,000 RPMs just for two hours, two hours and 14 minutes. And, oh, it's, uh, it's an experience for sure. Yeah, this is, um, it's, a constantly moving film. I mean, the, the number of scenes in which Adam Sandler is not walking around or speaking at a very quick pace um, is probably in the single digits. Uh, if they exist at all, I'm actually struggling to even really think about them. Maybe the Passover scene, but... Um, and it's it's impressive, and it's an impressive accomplishment because... It is still very, very focused in what the story it's telling is, mm -hmm. which with how frenetic it is as a film is Great a work. very tough task to actually um, live up to. And um, it also manages to mix in just enough moments of respite that it doesn't get monotonous with how chaotic it is. So you're mm. not... Because there are some films that I know Corn and I have both watched, and I, I, you know, obviously we struggle to think of names all the time. But where it's a, it's trying to be chaotic the whole movie, and then at some point you just kind of adjust, and then you it doesn't feel as chaotic as it's intended to, because it's become the tone. And this does a really good job of like mixing in just little little moments, little pauses, some longer scenes of less chaos. Um, just enough to make the rest of the film feel like it's hurting you on the inside. 
um, <laughs> in your heart. In in terms of the actual film itself, um, it's I, I I'm I'm interested to see how we're going to talk about it because it is a again it's a rather focused plot. Um, it 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 is it is about Adam Sandler trying to sell this jewel and not get murked up by people he owes money to. <laughs> uh, Which seems to be everyone in New York City. Right, and I think that's actually... It, it's one of the things about this film that really sets in the more you watch it. And I've seen this movie, I've seen this movie like four times in the last year. Not like really? on purpose, just because, just because. well, like, you know, I watched it with you last year when it came out, and then I also watched it with Dan last year when it came out. I watched it with Kel last year when it came out, and then we picked it for this week, so I watched it again this week. So I watched the movie like a bunch recently, um, oh. kind of on accident. Uh, and, you know, it really, you really get the sense of that Adam Sandler actually is good at his job but is a piece of shit. And the reason none of this shit really works out isn't because he's even necessarily doing his job poorly. It's just, he's just a piece of shit because he has a successful business. He had a good business partner, partner in Lakeith Stanfield. He, he got this jewel thing and he got it listed at Adley's, which is, you know, you know, an auction house like Sotheby's. Um, and he's got a family. The problem with all of it is he's just a piece of shit. It, he, and he gets people to trust him and give him business. And then he decides to do the piece of shit thing. And instead of, you know, like holding on to this guy's Michael Jackson pendant and not hawking it, he goes and hawks it to try to take money to place a bet, to get more money, to basically have constantly earning passive income off of people's trust. And that's what gets him fucked. Because all of the actual, like, straight-line business things that Adam Sandler tries to do, if he wasn't such a dick, would work out fine. Like, if, if, if he... Oh, sorry, go ahead. It's just an incredible amount of greed and addiction that just drives him. Whether it's, you know... It's a chicken or the egg argument. I'm sure both are codependent. But it's just he is so addicted to maximizing the amount of money he can have and is just so certain in his ability to win that it's this cycle of just manipulation of everyone he deals with to get money, get capital, invest it, and anytime he loses, it's okay. Now I need to get it back, make more money, make more money, and it's just never ending. And it's it's amazing, you know. He could stop at any point. He could sell this opal. He could, you know, focus on safe and effective management of that company that he has. I mean, dude's got fucking Kevin Durant, or not Kevin Durant, Kevin Garnett, you know, eating out of the palm of his hand with this. J- gem instead of trying to put it at auction and and bump it up to a million dollars and make an un, insane amount of money he could make fantastic return and be set but it's not it's an addictive personality it's all of these personality and mental health issues that are just driving him and and leads him down this cycle right and i i think i think it's the addiction more so than anything else, it's fully on display with his brutish behavior. Because, so, his addiction to gambling is one of the many things that causes him to constantly be in financial straits. And then his assholeish behavior is what is constantly causing him to exacerbate all those fucking problems. Like, the thing with Sotheby's. If, or, 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 sorry, Adley's. If he was just not an asshole and was on the phone with the woman in early on, and instead of being like, I got it, it's coming, it's coming, it's, you know, it'll be here. Sir, it's Thursday, it's supposed to be here already. And like, oh, fuck you, it's all that shit. If he was just like, look, there was a delay in shipping, or even if he was like, because it seemed like he was anticipating it coming loosely at this time, but it wasn't certain. So he was really like, 
getting it and getting it out. You know what I mean? Like, like his main concern was not having this thing sit around. It was getting it and then selling it fast. And even if he had just put a delay on it, you know, like, but regard, sorry, I'm getting lost on myself. But if he was just kinder to that woman on the phone and was like, look, uh, it, it's still in transit. My friend has it. Uh, I totally understand if we have to cancel the posting for this. I'm really sorry about this. If you can give me an extension on time, I'd appreciate it. If not, I hope we can work something out in the future. Whatever. Get his own appraisals. He is he's so much of an asshole. To ever same thing with Lakeith Stanfield. Lakeith Stanfield seems to be really fucking good at his job in this movie. Mm-hmm. And Adam Sandler is a giant dick. Now, does he have some I guess um reason to be curt? With Lakeith Stanfield about this gem thing, kind of, as a result of his own fucking stupidity, uh, but still not nearly to the extent that Stanfield deserved. And Stanfield was so understanding, or at least lenient, with how much shit Sandler gave to him that uh, he shouldn't have even been around for that long. Um, all of it, and then it all comes back to the idea that he's gambling. You know, he, he he is hawking things at shops to get money to place wagers. He is dropping off Durant's ring. Sorry, now you got me doing it. Garnett's ring to get 25 Gs to go place a bet when he owes 100K to Arno, which he mm-hmm. owes. I'm, and I assume that 100 grand was what he used to buy the emerald with in the first place. Right. I, I mean, like... All of, all of those problems are because he is a terrible guy. When in reality, if he just, like, you know, wasn't an addict, because again, like you said, this is an addiction story more than anything else, um, his business seems to be doing fine. Right, like, you borrow $100,000 from, what, your brother-in-law? I think, yeah. If you're upfront about, hey, I'm using this to buy this jewel... This is the expected, the honest, actual expected return. This is how long it will take me to sell it. This is when I'll get it back to you. We have a set, you know, interest rate, whatever you want to do. You're upfront, you're honest, and you maintain that communication throughout. I doubt he'll be putting you in the situation consistently. I doubt your fucking brother-in-law is going to be stripping you naked, locking you in the trunk of your own car. If the situation remains the same and you just communicate about it a little better. Like, hey, this goes up for auction this day. I need to sell it at you know that point. That's when I'll get you your money back. This is when you can expect to have it. Who's going to say no? Like, hey, like I'm getting $125,000 back. After he sells it for, you know, two hundred, whatever, one seventy-five, the dude makes twenty-five grand off of that investment. Adam Sandler gets fifty grand, you know, fifty grand in a day, even though it's you know seventeen months of work. That's a fucking great return. Then you can go gamble away all your money, do whatever. That's another story. But again, it is just the faults of Adam Sandler causing all of this. Right, and and even the fact that it's 175k, he was so quick to get the stone and to then push it. He didn't even take the time to get his own guy to give a a real um, uh, valuation on it, mm-hmm. you know, and then and, argue with the women at Adley's with no backup. Like, right. And if, Kevin Garnett already offered you 250 thousand for it. You could have taken it, but he was still. Yes. No, that's what he ended up. Originally, he's like 250 in the store when he first sees it. No, it was 175. Are you sure? Yeah. Cash. I right? could have sworn it was 250, and then thought... it went 175 after it went for less than that in the auction. No, no. I thought he was he, saying he, like, he... "I'll give you 250." He's like, "No, no, no, no. It's worth a million dollars." It's like, "Well, that's fucking stupid." It's like, blah 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 blah. No, well, when he came to the store with the drawstring bag full of cash, he said it was 175k, and that was yeah, before no, no, no. The I'm auction. talking when he first sees the opal. Oh, that I don't know. I could have sworn it was 250, but it's 
small potatoes. But it again goes back to the problem that that uh, Adam Sandler is turning down that money because he has a figure in his mind that he heard from mm -hmm. a guy and didn't actually go get appraised. Yep, it's a nightmare. And what this film actually does a really good job of if it, is it doesn't give you enough time to sit there and go, this guy's a fucking moron. Um, because so much of what he's doing is band-aids. So you get why each individual action is happening to certain extents. And then when he goes to go gamble, you go, oh my God, this fucking idiot. But like every single thing Adam Sandler does in this film is basically wrong. <laughs> like, like everything. But the, the movie moves so quickly that it doesn't give you time to sit on why these decisions are all terrible, that you can kind of get them in a certain sense, and then by the time you've un, you know, reached that level of understanding, you've moved on to the next scene. And that is also to its benefit, because it's, it gives you almost this false impression that Adam Sandler maybe almost knows what he's doing, when it's so clear he doesn't. Yep. Oh, man. You want to talk about his personal life? Because that's another bucket of fucking worms oh, I, don't, God, I don't remember what how really that is to fucking say his, his his daughter doesn't give a shit about him and his uh his son thinks of him as a hero because his son's probably like i don't know Sports. somewhere around bar mitzvah age tough to say yeah. and he doesn't give a shit about his kids i mean granted he doesn't give a shit about anyone but himself well that's true one of my favorite things that I, I think I noticed the first time and, and definitely confirmed again was Julia Fox says I love you at the end of every conversation with him. And he only says it back after he wins that money at the end. And I don't think he's saying it to her. I think he's saying I love you to the fact that he won money. Oh, of course. Oh, that just hits home. Of course. Oh, man. And those uh, those bodyguards are fucking idiots at the end. Yeah. Unbelievably stupid. Unbelievable. So for anyone who hasn't seen, I mean, it's still a relatively recent movie, I guess. Um, Adam Sandler gets an opal from um, Ethiopian Jews, a.k.a. Beta Jews. Um, uh, Ethiopia is referred to sometimes occasionally as Beta Israel. Um, not mentioned in the film, just a fun fact. Go Ethiopian Jews, my people. Like uh, he gets it, and he's trying to hawk it at a um, auction house just to make money. In the meantime, he owes money all around town, and people constantly try to hit him up to collect. Um, he loses track of the Opal at several points due to loaning it out to Kevin Garnett. Um, and uh, at the end of the film, his one of his ma his main debt collector, uh, his brother-in-law, we guess, Arno, and his two bodyguards come to collect. He had already placed a bet with the money that he owed to them, except this time it hit. But uh, due to the frustrations of them being basically forced to watch um, the Game 7 in 2012 between the Celtics and the Sixers, um, Arno's bodyguards shoot uh, Adam Sandler out of frustration and then ultimately kill Arno as well before ransacking the jewelry store that Adam Sandler runs and leaving. Um, which again... This is why Corey and I are saying it's insane because that bet was supposed to turn out like what one point two million dollars or some shit like that. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, which you know, let's say taxes are crazy and it's fifty percent. I don't know what it is, but let's just say fifty. Um, that's six hundred thousand dollars. It would be thirty-five percent. I think that's the highest tax bracket. Okay. I don't. I don't know because it's not technically it doesn't go by brackets. It um, it's a different form of income, and I don't know what gift. Mm. Because I don't, uh, I think it's a technically just, a gift tax. Let's just say 50 then. <laughs> yeah, I, as I'm saying, it, I know it's different. We're going to call it 600K, just for sake of conversation. Which means that Arno's going to get his $100,000. There is a different point in the film in which Adam Sandler says that he just needs the price to hit $250,000 when he's at the auction house. So I'm left to assume that in addition to the 100000 original investment, there might be some points that he owes or some additional money that he owes somewhere. I'm not sure if that goes to Arno or not. So let's set aside 250 k for all debts. I personally the think the 250 was to match what KD originally offered. KG originally offered. But again... <laughs> 
what have you. I yeah, I, I think that's a good point, and I, I'm not sure, but we'll, yeah, we'll we'll leave it at two fifty. That still leaves three hundred fifty thousand dollars left over. Each of these dudes are probably gonna they, each each of these fucking dudes could get paid fifty G's for roughing up a guy, um, and still be like, and that still leaves Sandler with 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 plenty of money, um, to you know even fork over a little bit extra their way for their their pain and suffering for having to deal with that fucking uh, vestibule, and these guys just just kill him and then steal all of his shit, and they're gonna have to go hock it, and that's illegal. And they're probably going to get caught because it's a murder on camera. And not only that, they can't get out of that room. That's the other thing I was thinking of. Yeah. How the fuck are they getting out? Someone's got to buzz the fucking door. Someone's staying behind. How? And the file fell out. So unless they know how to do it, which they showed as being something that is not easily done without knowing how to do it. They can't get the door open to begin with. There's no scenario where they get away with this murder. No. And God, it's just insane. Because they don't have, like, I assume, I, you know, assumed the first time watching, they think they are getting away with it because of, um, they think their guy is going to be able to pick up Julia Fox's uh, character and get all the money with it but they don't even have that they have no confirmation and they don't even have anything to show for it so mm. boy see what I, I didn't realize that I I read it like that this that the moral of this film not the moral but one of the recurring themes of this film is here is a guy in a position to actually come out ahead and here is how they ruin it with a complete lack of thinking and with emotional responses. Sure. Because that's what Adam Sandler does the whole movie. And then here come yeah. these two dudes and they do that exact same thing too. Mm -hmm. Like every, everyone in this movie is in a position to succeed at some point in the one thing they're trying to do. And that then gets... Arno is positioned to the, get all his money back like in the first half of the film because of that $25,000 bet that got placed on uh, the first Celtics game that, that Sandler bets on, and he fucks himself over with that because of emotional... Th Not that he should have trusted Sandler anyway, but regardless, the whole movie is like this. Um, and so I took the ending to be a continuation of that as well. Um, but... Fuck, I don't know. Uh, what an intense, intense film. Just... From the start. Yeah, fucking from jump. Starting off with the fucking colonoscopy. Oh, God, yeah. that The intro to this film is nutty. Well, it starts <laughs> off in... It's, it's, a, it's, like a, it's like a fucking parabola. It starts off in space, and then you're in his ass. And then when it ends, it zooms in on a different orifice, and then you end up in space. Yep. It's weird. Yeah. Um, the galaxy is in Adam Sandler's rectum. That's what we can all conclude. Hmm. Lovely. Yeah. And if you want complete enlightenment, you gotta fuck Adam Sandler in the butt. No thanks, I'm okay. It's the only way. Nope, I'm good. Yep. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta cornhole Billy Madison. It's the only way. Good. <laughs> good. Thank you for that visual. You're welcome. Um, yes, a lot. <laughs> uh, I really don't have much else to say about this. Oh, I, I will say, Kevin Garnett giving one of the best athlete performances in a... Like, because he actually has some real lines to read. You know, it's yeah. not just like... Because a lot of times when you see athletes in movies, they're playing, like, affable versions of themselves. You know, like, LeBron yeah. James, I remember, was in a movie, uh, Trainwreck. Trainwreck. Um, where all he really had to do was to, like be LeBron James and also come across nice on screen, which is LeBron James. Like he, it's just him reading lines, but like being LeBron James. Mm -hmm. Kevin Garnett actually had to like act a little bit, and he did a really good job. And it's not like they do the thing where it's like, oh, it's it's a 
some situation where it's like, oh, he's in it, he's got like actual lines, but the scenario he's in is like, all right, he's not the focal point. It's, you know, they do a lot to support him with the other characters. The scenes where he's really doing it, like where he's really acting, he's really acting and they get close with it. The Safty's like bringing it in real tight, really showing, you know, everything, uh, all the reactions in his face, all these little nuances that you have set for, you know, real characters that you would expect from, you know, Adam Sandler or Julia Fox or any of these other professional actors. And they're just rolling with Kevin Garnett and they're making him look great. Even though I'm sure Kevin Garnett made himself look great. I'm sure he did a fantastic job in all reality. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure this is a stretch for acting, but I think still within the mental wheelhouse of being an athlete, because the idea behind it is like, this thing is going to help me be in the zone. Um, for games is really what it, I guess boils down to in the practical application of his attachment to the to the gem, um, which I'm sure Garnett, if has not experienced in some way himself with something that helps him get in the zone for games, knows a guy who had something as a ritual or whatever. Um, but yeah, you know, they, he, has, he has so much experience, you know, with how much flopping there is in the NBA that I'm sure it works out, uh, you know, it's really natural for him. We should, we should think. That was a joke. Oh, I I got you. I got you. Oh, by the way, apparently that original bet would have netted him $600,000. So either way. um, The one that uh, Arnie took off the books. Yep. Either way. Don't know how that's even a thing that you can do is just take somebody else's bet. Oh, I guess sports books aren't exactly super legal. So, oh, which actually, it's another question. Mike Francesa, um, local radio icon, um, also not an actor, also in this film. What do you think about Mike Francesa in this film? Uh, the fact that his name's not Fran Mike Francesca uh, is kind of new to me. My bad. I don't watch him. Um, he drops the F-bomb. I know that was a big deal. Now, Mikey, you don't curse. What's going on? You're dropping F-bombs in this movie? My kids saw this movie. Uh, Correct. Yeah, so for anyone, um, I don't even know if it's a local thing anymore because he did it for so long. Mike Francesa, uh, host of, one of the co-hosts of the Mike and the Mad Dog radio show on ESPN uh, New York for like 25 years with Mad Dog Russo and then just recently retired from his own show on ESPN Radio. Uh, sucks. Fucking sucks. Fuck, fuck Mike Francesa. <laughs> Dude's the fucking yeah. worst. <laughs> I cannot stand the man. Oh my God, he is brutal to listen to. He fucking... The only thing that made Mike and the Mad Dog a fun show to listen to was the fact that the two dudes would disagree so vehemently they would basically start shouting at each other on the radio every day. That was the point. That was the whole point of why people listen to Mike and the Mad Dog, not because of informed baseball commentary, of which neither of them had. Yeah. Russo, nut job Mets fan, has no clue how modern day baseball works outside of fucking batting average. And Mike Francesa, overly cocky Yankees fan who thinks he could GM every team, which Corbin and I joke about on our other show, but Mike Francesa actually believes. And the two of them would just fucking get into it. And then when they split up on their own shows, they didn't have that guy that would balance them out because they had enough star power to have their own individual shows. That they, both their careers, I mean, Russo still has a show, but like, fucking, who's listening to that shit? It's Russo yelling at nobody, and then nobody yelling at Francesa, who deserves to be yelled at because his opinions were bad. Um, but anyway, anyway, it's incredible how awful he is at being a sports commentator. He's fucking sucks. It's ridiculous. Coming from two sports commentators, yeah, we've had yeah. bad takes, but nothing quite like the consistency of Mike Francesca. Uh, yeah, Francesca. him, 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 and Russo, man. Oh Whatever my god. The- fuck his name is like picture every bad sports take you see on twitter from someone within uh with a profile picture over the age of 45 
And that's Mike Francesa's take every single time. <laughs> um, I like to think of him as Colin Cowherd without the class and without the possibility of getting it right every now and again. Fair. That's fair. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I didn't care about seeing him in this movie. I don't know why he was there. I didn't give a shit. He's uh, a New York icon, I, whether you like it or not. I guess. I, ugh, whatever. You know what would have been better was if Patrick Ewing was the bookie and nobody acknowledged the fact it was Patrick Ewing? <laughs> that would be fucking funny. Like, Patrick Ewing just owns an Italian restaurant in, like, around the Diamond District and, <laughs> no, seen... and, and plays his sports bets and no one acknowledges the fact that seven-foot-tall dude who is a New York legend <laughs> is, is actually Patrick Ewing? Oh, it would be so funny. Well, I mean, he owns a restaurant in that show, uh, Big Mouth. Yeah, Patrick Ewing's Brewing Company. Yep. Yeah. Oh, Coach Steve. Um, yeah, I really don't have much else to say about this. I mean, th there's a lot of detail in the film because there's so many scenes. I mean, there's just so many scenes. So th there, there's a lot of, like, little things that we can really get into if we had the inclination, but I don't think I have anything else to say about, like, the film itself. Do you? No. All right, then let's move into final ratings and reviews. Corwin, this was your film. You start. Um, man, it's tough giving this like an honest to god rating. Um, it's one of those movies where it's more experience than it is like, you know, meaningful narrative or commentary things like that. Um, but boy, what an experience it is. Uh. I'll give it a four. I think it's a very solid four. I'm with you. I, I'm probably going to give it between four and three and a half. Total gut feeling. I have no reason for it. Um, maybe because it is difficult to watch because of how stressed it will make you. Even Ooh. knowing all the twists and turns. It is still very effective at what it does, which I guess is to its credit, but I don't know. Uh, I'll settle on a three and a half to be different from what you said. That, that's, that's, the only, that's the only real reason I have concrete. Okay. All right. Oh, uh, wow. Let's take it to the, the next one. Uh, this, this week's Oscars y pick, Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, so in our. Uh, continued series of trying to uh, watch all the films we are expecting to get Oscars nominations. Oscars nominations are due out uh, one month from yesterday, as you're listening to this, um, March 15th. So we're we're closing in on the stretch of um, having to use our Imagine's picks. Um, but we are we have anticipated or I've seen marked uh, Judas and the Black Messiah for potential best supporting actor, best original screenplay and best cinematography Oscars. Um, so we'll talk about those as we go through the movie. Um, but Judas and the Black Messiah was released this past Friday. This is a very recent film. Uh, so 2021. Uh, it is the story of Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, and his fateful betrayal by FBI informant William O'Neill. Um, it was directed by Shaka King. It was written by Will Burson. Shaka King. Oh, there's a few other people here. Um, Kenneth Lucas and Keith Lucas, as well as... Th those are all four guys who wrote the story. The actual screenplay itself was done by Will Burson and Shaka King. Uh, it stars Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, and Jesse Plemons. Um, do we have an estimated budget? I don't see one, nor do I see a gross, which I doubt we're going to see because of, again, this is a streaming release. Uh, Wikipedia claims the budget is $26 million with a box office currently of $2.4 million. Again, it's just impossible to know that box office figure in any real way, um, so it doesn't matter. Uh, it has already been, it is currently, I guess I should say, nominated for two Golden Globes. It's currently nominated for Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role Motion Picture uh, for Daniel Kaluuya, which again is the Oscar we're assuming this is going to get a nomination for. Uh, it is also nominated for Best Original Song Motion Picture for the song Fight For You. 
Um, and I read the description early, but I'll read it again. Story of Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, and his fateful betrayal by FBI informant William O'Neill. So this was my pick. I'll get us started. Um, so I did not know what this movie was going to be about. I choose to never research what movies are about um, or watch trailers if I can avoid them so that when I hear something's supposed to be good, I can go in it fresh and try to limit my own expectations of things. So I had no idea this was going to be about Fred Hampton and was so fucking excited when I realized it was going to be about Fred Hampton. Um, which I know is a is not the point necessarily of going of of reviewing films is necessarily the chosen historical figure but i am infatuated with fred hampton i am so happy so happy that there is a film like this to tell more of the story of fred hampton he is such an important figure in our very recent history in dealing with civil rights and the fight for civil rights um, back in the sixties and continuing today. So I'm so, I was so excited to, to, when I realized that this movie was about him. Um, and this is a part of his story. I actually didn't know. Um, so Same. getting to see it unfold was wild to me because I, I knew he was, he was murdered by, by, uh, Chicago police and, and FBI. I did not realize the informant aspect of it. Um, so seeing that unfold, I thought was also amazing. Getting into the film itself, holy shit, this movie was well fucking done. I am, yeah. I cannot speak highly enough of how amazingly this film was put together. Um, you know, politics aside, um, the cinematography of this, insane. Dialogue, perfect. The actual way that they let the story unfold is also I mean, I mean, it's it, it's incredible. They managed to tell the story of Wild Bill O'Neill and Fred Hampton and uh, Fred Hampton's. I, I'm not sure they ever actually get married in in the movie, but his 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 uh, girlfriend, wife, uh, as well as side plots about you know like the guy from the FBI and Jay. They they fit so much fucking story into this two hour film. And they take time to give broader brushstrokes to who Fred Hampton the man is by showing more intimate moments in his life. You know, by, by giving him small little scenes where he's actually interacting with, um, oh fuck, what's his goddamn, Deborah Johnson. Uh, showing him as, as a person and not just a guy on a poster, you know, like, like, here's this guy that did all those cool things. Look at him. He did all those cool things. No, also a man, you know, um, the fact that they bounced parts of the story with him being in jail and it didn't come off like weird or that like, or like there was a gap where he should have been. And there was missing the Daniel Kaluuya sized hole. No, from a writing perspective, this film is off the fucking charts in how well put together it is. And then you add in all the acting that went into this, all the cinematography that went into this, all the heart that went into this. I mean, my God, I, I am over the moon at how uh, astonishingly well put together this movie was. Yeah, you know, I, I can't honestly say that I am as invested, or not even invested, just uh, as blown away as it, like you were. I can also confidently say that I in no way think that this is a bad movie, and I think it was done extremely, extremely well. Um, I'm a big fan of both how they portrayed the story, how they let it unfold, and how they basically just... You know, technically, I agree with you that the cinematography is fantastic. Um, I wouldn't say it's the highlight, I would very much say that the highlight is the narrative storytelling. And I know, I, I think I mentioned this to you, um, you know, privately, I have definitely talked to, you know, Ethan about this, but my goodness, this is probably the angriest I've ever been after watching a movie in many years. It is just infuriating trying to wrap my head around 
the level of atrocities that were committed um, by the FBI, by the Chicago police, by this country as a whole. I, it's just unfathomable but that this is so recent in our history. And I wanted to watch both of these movies back to back. I ended up watching this one first. And I had to stop. Like, I couldn't switch over to Uncut Gems. I just had to, like, go for a walk, get some fresh air, and just, like, not think about this for a while because of how intensely angry I was after watching the full Fred Hampton story. Uh, well, first off, yeah, I mean, when you really get into the, the nuts and bolts of who J. Edgar Hoover was uh, as a human being, which you see a little bit of in the biopic made about him from, jeez, uh, uh, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe at this point, yeah, uh, starring, um, yeah, J. Edgar starring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was, he was a racist monster. I, there's, there's, there's no two ways about it. I, I mean, he led to the, the, the killing of so many political influencers and, and black liberation leaders uh, in the 60s because of targeting by the police. I, I mean, oh my God, if he is one of the most evil men in United States history, um, or at least in recent United States history, I should say. Um, but get, doesn't get nearly as much as the attention because he was uh, in a less public role as FBI director instead of, say, President of the United States. Um, mm -hmm. But, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's positively infuriating, but also, I, I... You know, it's hard to look at a guy like Fred Hampton and not feel absolutely inspired by what he is trying to accomplish. Right. And to have to constantly remind yourself throughout the course of the film that the years that they're showing you are Fred Hampton from ages, I think, 19 to 21. Uh, I believe so. Because I know he was 21 when he died. Right. Like, that's, that's the oldest he will be in this movie is 21. Like, that's fucking nuts. Mm -hmm. Think about everything accomplished by this guy before age 21. And seeing the genuine good that they were working at and the fire and understanding and compassion that Daniel Kaluuya brings to the role, I think is just fucking tremendous. Absolutely. He is 100% deserving of uh, Best Actor nominee, without oh question. He's so fucking good in this. Uh, in, in terms of the actual plot of this film, it... It mainly follows, I guess, the Lakeith Stanfield character um, for large portions of it because it's, I guess, more so directly from a storytelling perspective about his journey as a guy around Fred Hampton. Um, and it starts off with, first off, actually, uh, while we're speaking of acting, what do you think of Lakeith Stanfield in this? Fantastic as always. Yeah, I don't. Th I, I I find it interesting. We've never seen him get an Oscar nomination because, for one thing, he is a really good actor. Uh, and for another thing, he has a great. Uh, I don't know if it's manager or um, uh, just his own personal ability to pick kick-ass films. He is constantly in great fucking movies. Yeah, when was the last time you saw him in a movie where you were like, "Man, I I, I don't like this movie altogether." Like, it's just nonstop fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, Every so it's movie. like weird to see him in something that isn't, um, or weird to, like that he hasn't gotten an Oscars nomination. I've been on this dude since 2012 when he was in Short Term 12. Um, wait, that was his first movie? That's crazy. Um, that's wild. But since then, he's been in Short Term 12, um, Selma, which was an Oscar nominated film that he didn't get nominated for, uh, Dope, which he was really good at, uh, at really good in, straight out of Compton. Um, Snowden. I don't remember Snowden. Uh, Get Out, Crown Heights, Incredible Jessica James. Uh, oh yeah, he was in Death Note. Sorry to bother you. 
uh, Uncut Gems, this, Knives Out. Yeah, he's all over the place. Anyway, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, so it follows him as he gets uh, nipped by the police while he's trying to uh, imp uh, impersonate an FBI officer to steal cars from random dudes in the neighborhood. Um, Which is a wild scenario. Yeah, right? As far as risk-reward. Oh, man. And the, the one thing I do wish they picked on a little bit more, and I know it's tough to ask for in a film that covers so much uh, time and story, but is this concept that the police can just fuck with you? And I get that there's a return on the police's end, but they're basically looking at this guy and saying, we're either going to send your ass to jail for five years Starting from, I guess, whenever they feel as though he's not useful anymore, um, based on how it seemed as though their conversations went, uh, or you can infiltrate a political movement and try to help sabotage it. Um, and man, is that shitty. And while I'm not trying to sit here and say that, like, what Lakeith Stanfield did was okay because he led directly to the killing of fred hampton um it's part of the you know the the like despotic power of the police in a lot of communities especially in a lot of black communities where they can kind of fuck with you like this and just how it reinforces the you know the idea that the police are above the law they are above those reaches. Um, and that is, especially today, watching this, um, Madness. it's hard to watch. You know, it's because it's so fucking true. Um, ugh. And I, I think Jesse Plemons did a really phenomenal job with this, as he usually does, being like the somewhat creepy bad dude. In being the worst type of law enforcement, which is a guy that you look at and you go, you know, I don't think that guy's, you know, like capital R racist, but he's definitely willing to do all the racist shit to keep his career intact, mm -hmm. which de facto makes you racist. Um, right. And that's the worst type of guy because they do this shit. 100%. I mean, granted, Jesse Plemons is amazing at that specific kind of character. I don't know how he does it. Um, well, that's a bad statement. It's just, it's amazing how that's just every single character he's ever played. Um, it's, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, just move. Let's move on. Um, yeah, done. he um, another guy that had, I don't think has ever gotten an Oscar nomination, and I'm not sure he has done anything like full on deserving. But he's always he's a very consistently good actor. Like uh, you, when I saw he was going to be in this movie, I was like, oh, he'll be good in this. He's always good in, in mm -hmm. whatever it is he's in. Um, I I I love the room that this film gives towards the politics of the moments. Because for me, you're not going to get an understanding of the weight and significance without it. So the mm -hmm. fact that there are multiple monologues at rallies or just speeches for Fred Hampton, for one, contributes so well to the emotional impact of the film. It'll get you riled up listening to it. It'll instill a, a sense of inspiration in you should you be inclined to, to agree with Mr. Hampton, as I would hope we all would. Um, but it also will show you what Bill's betrayal is going to mean by showing you how impactful the man he's betraying is. And so it's this, and it gets to showcase Daniel Kaluuya. So it's really this this fucking triple quadruple edged sword in all the best. It, it's so multifunctional because you get 
all of these things out of these moments. It, it slows the movie down a little bit in a good way, gives it a little bit of room to breathe, and it really invites you in to that moment, to that movement, and to these people, while also informing how you're supposed to be feeling about the rest of what's happening. And they're really amazing moments, in addition to how amazing those words are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the speeches he gives throughout, you can feel the weight and the power and the... What's the term? The, the gravitas that he carries with him. You can feel that come through the screen. You can see how he was able to start this rainbow coalition, how he was able to bring all of these different people together under this singular cause. Um, it, it's very prominent. Yeah, I mean, when, when he goes into like the racist backwoods, we have a Confederate flag in fucking Chicago. Um, I don't know, fucking hut, whatever bullshit place they were getting ready to bang their sisters in. Um, you know, he he just shows you he's still not there to shit on these obviously racist people. You know, mm -hmm. he is still there making a case for where their common ground is. He is still there going, don't you want more food for your kids? Mm -hmm. We have a we have a, a a morning breakfast program at this church. We would love your guys' help. We'd love to feed your kids. We we we're just trying to build up a better community. Don't you hate when the police come knocking your guys' fucking heads for no goddamn reason? We hate it too. And mm -hmm. and did that with local gangs in the area. And and this is also a point in in time when gangs were largely still serving their original purpose, which was providing for the community a lot of gangs started off as people who would as groups who would provide food for the community and protection for the community against police and help you know get distribute money for uh school supplies and clothes i'm not trying to make it sound like they they didn't do anything wrong a lot of gangs sold drugs even you know back in the 50s and 60s but there was a strong community purpose around them which is why, in a different movie, the beef over turf, so to speak, between um, the Black Panther Party and the Crowns would be about something other than giving food to kids for school. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it's a finer point that might get lost in the relatively more militaristic dress and apparel um, that was just a factor of the times. Um, it was meant to bring about a sense of unity and discipline that you would get in the military without actually joining the military. Um, but these bodies, while they might have seemed scary, you know, these groups, uh, they, they were there to do kind of all the same shit, just with different clothes. And that's also a big part of seeing Fred Hampton do the Fred Hampton thing in this film is bringing them all together to unite a common cause. And that idea is also going to lend itself to the emotional impact of seeing him die and get betrayed. And I think seeing the callousness and just the ruthlessness of those specific police at the end as well, where it's like, it's not like he was killed in a raid. He was executed. You know, it's not like, oh, they were going in to arrest him, shots were fired. It's unfortunate, but it's the way it turned out. It's like, no, they went in there for the sole purpose and intention of killing him. They wounded him and then executed him to make sure he did not continue with this cause. Right. Right, like, like they said, he could still be a leader from jail. Mm-hmm. Gosh, fucking criminal. And one of the other things I think I think this film does a really good job of is also not shying away from some of the worst aspects of what specifically the uh, Chicago chapter of the Black Party, Black Panther Party, did uh, during this point in history. Like, 
there, like like the uh, the shootout at headquarters, where mm-hmm. I believe the Black Panther Party shoots first. Um, and you know, no, no, they didn't. No, she showed the gun, then they opened fire. The ah, police opened right, fire right, first. Right. Uh, and there was the uh, the the two guys who killed some cops earlier on. The one guy who uh, shot some police officers while they were looked like they were patting down um, like a bodega or deli owner for like no goddamn reason. And then his yep. friend who ends up killing cops while on somewhat, I guess, revenge spree of sorts. Um, yep. All of which are wrong. Eh. Um, but the idea that they're also not sugarcoating the movement to make you think it was all sunshine and rainbows is also important. Like mm-hmm. the idea that they're showing you, here's what it was. Here's what it was. Here's what they did. Good and bad, and what have you. And this is who they were. Ends up also helping you buy in. Because if if someone's trying to sell you that anyone in the '60s was without fault in the political sphere, uh, like I don't know, uh, maybe trial the Chicago Seven, maybe one Aaron Sorkin, <laughs> um, <laughs> trying to sell you that everyone was faultless, it makes it harder to believe it because it doesn't seem believable. But and seeing people, right? Because right, exactly. Because because it isn't. Because if you watch this movie and thought that the Black Panther Party of, of Chicago was like a pristine group of people who only wanted to feed, feed kids and had no hostile feelings or or um, uh, motives at all, uh, and then you found out later on that there was some stuff like this, you go, well, then what else in this movie is bullshit? And the fact that they show you some of it aids in, one, making it feel more accurate, two, helping you buy in, and three, just giving a more complete picture of what they're actually trying to show you, which is going to make everything you see more impactful as it goes on. Mm-hmm. I just cannot comment enough on how fucking who well di- this movie was. Who directed this? Shaka King. What else have they done? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, let me pull up his IMDb. Um. Ooh, nothing I know. Uh, Newly Weeds from 2013 and uh, Mullignans from 2015. Yeesh, I didn't like even saying that. Um, yeah, I don't know that one. Yeah, I don't know either of these films. Uh, he directed a few episodes of the TV show Shrill which is a great show on um, Hulu. Directed a couple episodes of the show High Maintenance, which is a great show on HBO Max. Um, yeah, not too much before this. I hope he does everything now. <laughs> um, yeah, because this is, this is really, really good work. Um, but yes, this was uh, directed by Shaka King. Ew. To you, Shaka. Um, Shaka. And it, you know, even like uh, like the kitchen scene when uh, when Daniel Kaluuya is talking with uh, I think James's mother, I think is who they were talking about at the time. Um, Jimmy Palmer's mother. Uh, you know, taking a moment away from the rhetoric of Hampton, you know, talking very impassionately either on the stage or to um, his comrades uh, about the cause to take a moment away from him saying all the things to where it's a movement that strictly is driven by him and everyone's bought into him as a leader and are all following uh, due to his charisma or believing in the cause or what have you. To take a moment away from that to show a woman who is not the age of everybody else. She's an older, she's, you know, she's older. She's their mother's age, you know, Uh who also believes in all this. And who humanizes the guy who shot the cops and who, who gives a different perspective on what is happening, who the people involved are, what it all means and represents 
while Fred Hampton is playing the listener in that role, which is so different from how we see Fred Hampton throughout the rest of the film, is such an impactful scene. Because it is doing... It is, it is trying to do all the things, all, a lot of the rest of the, a lot of the other scenes in the film are all, but by giving it that different vantage point, manages to accomplish all of them in such a different way than the other ones do, which lends itself so well as, you know, another frame in this uh, collage that makes up this, that makes up this film. Mm-hmm. This is a good, this is a good movie, Josh. Good movie. This is a good movie. Um, loved Lil Rel Howery in this movie for almost no reason. Loved he was there though. Who? Lil Rel Howery. He was the uh, the dude at the uh, I can't tell if it was a bar or a strip club at the near the end. Hmm. It's wearing like a pimp jacket. He gives Lakeith Stanfield his own fake ID from the. Oh right right right. Right. That's a little real Harry. He was in Get Out. Yep. I haven't seen it, but you know. Oh, that's a little real Harry. He's wow. great. Wow, good to know. Um, I'm not sure what else I have to say, I guess, at the moment. Um, do you have anything else for this? Not currently, no. Alright, well then I guess we'll get into final ratings and reviews. Uh this was my film, so I'll go first. Um so we have this as, like I said earlier on, we have this as being a potential nominee for Best uh, Actor in a Supporting Role for Dan Kaluuya, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Cinematography. I really hope this gets a Best Picture nomination. If we look at this as compared to Trial of Chicago 7, which I'm picking on because they take place at the same time, and both films have Fred Hampton literally in them, um, or you know, an actor playing Fred Hampton, uh, my God, this film does such a better job at doing what Trial of Chicago 7 was trying to do. Granted, at different discussion points in the political discourse of the time, Trial of Chicago 7 more so focusing in on the Vietnam War, with this film more so focusing on the Black Power movement of the 60s. However, I mean, this film just does everything, and I mean everything, so much fucking better. So much better. Uh, especially 100%. that cheesy fucking ending <laughs> at the end of uh, Trial of Chicago 7, where everyone God, claps. It's the fucking worst. It's it so ends bad. with everyone claps. Ugh. Um, but anyway, like that's Chicago's, a meme. It is. It, it, actual it, honest to God meme. That it's and been a meme for years. Clapped. Everyone stood and clapped. Really? Anyway, if Trial of Chicago 7 is going to is getting best picture love. I don't see why this wouldn't and I really hope it does. Um I think the storytelling in this is just so incredible and phenomenal and this is if you've never heard of Fred Hampton before. This is such a great introduction. Um and I'm not even trying to sit sit here and make it sound like I'm some goddamn Fred Hampton historian. I I I I'm I'm not. I <laughs> But I, I have an appreciation for our lesser-discussed civil rights leaders, and Fred Hampton is very much so one of them, and this paints such a picture. Um, it, it is such a well-done portrait of a man and of a time and of a betrayal and of a movement. I, I, I seriously, I fucking love this. Uh, I really hope it gets a Best Picture nomination. And if it does, I know there's a lot of Best Picture noms that we... Um, are projecting that we haven't seen yet, but I mean, this is this is my favorite film that I've watched so far this year. Um, wow, high of this, praise of, of this year's. Oh, absolutely, of this year's releases, this is my favorite film that I've watched this year. Um, I'm giving this a five. Like, I loved this. Movie. Oh wow, I loved this movie. I thought it was so incredibly well. Done. Um, I, I literally I couldn't ask anything more of it. I'm such a. Fan. I'm giving it a four. No particular reason in particular, just uh, one of those gut feelings. Totally fair, man. Totally uh, Alright, movies for next week? 
Yes. All right. So I have the non-Oscars pick. Um, so I'll give mine first. I'm going with another relatively recent film that came out uh, last year. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime, Knives Out. Very excited to watch this again. Yes. I saw it once in theaters. I am excited to watch it a second time. And how um, weird of a sentence is that? Saw it in theaters. What even is a theater anymore? Right. Um, my pick, uh, recent film, Oscar pick, uh, Malcolm and Marie. Thank you, Brain, for letting me figure it out. Yes, Malcolm we are in, We are anticipating this, or we at least have seen this marked as getting a best uh, actress in a leading role nomination for Zendaya. So that is what we are going to be on the lookout for as we watch this film. Good to know. Um, and is it uh, John... John David, David Washington. Washington. Yep. Yeah. I always um, forget his middle name. And this will be on Netflix. So both these films are available on stream. Hail to the yes. What's Knives Out on? Amazon Prime? Yes. Cool. All right. So those are the picks for next week. 2019's Knives Out and 2021's Malcolm and Marie... Give them a watch before we uh, for next week's episode um, as we inch nearer and nearer to the actual Oscars nominations and we can stop guessing. That'll be fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> since we are so uncertain if we're doing this right. But hey, that's all part of the joy. Um, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do so at Big Screen Juice. And if you want to hit us up via email, any movie recommendations or what have you, do so at juicingthebigscreen at gmail.com. Until next week, y'all have a good one. Uh, bye.